Our scripture lesson today does come from the book of Acts, uh, the acts of the Holy Spirit through the people of God in the early church. Uh, we're at chapter 17 as we move through these missionary journeys of Paul, and we see the good news of Jesus Christ spread to all the world, if you'll share in this good word with me. So Paul took his stand in the open space at the Areopagus and laid it out for them. It is plain to see that you Athenians take your religion seriously. When I arrived here the other day, I was fascinated with all the shrines I came across. And then I found one inscribed to the God nobody knows. I'm here to introduce you to this God so you can worship intelligently. Know who you're dealing with. The God who made the world and everything in it, this master of sky and land, doesn't live in custom-made shrines or need the human race to run errands for him, as if he couldn't take care of himself. He makes the creatures. The creatures don't make him. Starting from scratch, he made the entire human race and made the earth hospitable with plenty of time and space for living so we could seek after God and not just grope around in the dark, but actually find him. He doesn't play hide-and-seek with us. He's not remote. He's near. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. We look a lot like the first century church. People of all different kinds of places and differences, and they were trying to figure out how do they live life together in the same way that churches today are trying to figure out how do we live life together. And so it it begins, uh, this movement, out of Jerusalem and into the world with a man named Paul. Uh, Paul grew up, uh, Saul, named after the first king of Israel. He grew up in Tarsus. He was a devout Jew uh, and also a wealthy Roman citizen. Uh, They were a tent-making family. They owned their own business. And he went at about age 12 to 14 down to study in Jerusalem. He would have learned rhetoric and poetry and law and how to do all that. So he goes down from Tarsus. He doesn't grow up in Israel. He grows up here in Tarsus. And he travels as a young man, 12, 14 years of age, all the way down through Turkey, Syria, uh, down here to Israel, and goes to school in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, he would have been studying to be a Pharisee, a teacher of the law, a lawyer of the day. Again, there's no separation of church and state. So he's going to help decide um, what goes on and how you interpret the law and and who can do what and and to what degree and at what frequency, what pace, all of that. And he's he's on the fast track. And, And what he learns there at school is that the Lord your God is what? One. That's what the Shema says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And, and this one God you are to worship with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Now, Jesus later will say, and also love your neighbor as yourself. But it all began with the Lord your God is one and love that one God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And then there is this man named Jesus uh, right over here in uh, Nazareth. And he says, no, 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 he's God. Well, what are you going to do with that? Because the Pharisees could never be a part of anything that was unclean or sinful, that they had separated themselves so that they would be pure and holy and undefiled and and could be right by God. And here's this Jesus who says he's God, and he's actually hanging out with all kinds of sinners, tax collectors and prostitutes, uh, dead people who he raises from the dead, all the people you're not supposed to be with, that's who Jesus is with. And he's claiming to be God. And Paul would have nothing to do with that. So he says, no, 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 no. I'm going to become a persecutor of the early followers of Jesus. We have to stamp this out. This man is a heretic. He's not God. There's only one God. We've learned that. I've known that since I was a little boy. And so he, this is his life's goal. He is at the stoning of Stephen. And, and this happens until he meets Jesus in a blinding light on the road to Damascus. 
Now, if we go back to the map, what you'll see is he's down here in Jerusalem. He's done his schooling, and so now he's probably about 20 years old uh, when he stands and affirms the stoning of Stephen. And he's going to, he hears that there are some followers of Jesus up in Damascus, and he's on his way to stamp that out. And as he goes, Jesus finds him in a blinding light. And, and, and he's struck uh, down, and he's blinded. And, and Saul says, Lord, who, who is this that, that has done this to me? And, and the voice says, it's Jesus whom you're persecuting, Saul. You know, stop this. This isn't the way it's to be. And so for three days he is blinded until a man named Ananias comes and lays hands on him and blesses him and he regains his sight. Now you would think, and it's easy to kind of read over this with the Bible, that somehow, you know, the story just goes on. It doesn't. What happens is Paul goes out into the Arabian desert um, just on outside of Damascus for three years. His world is completely rocked. It's completely upside down because he doesn't know what to do. Everything, his whole trajectory, his whole career path is going one way to persecute these heretics who follow Jesus. And now he realizes that Jesus is who he said he was all along. And he doesn't know what to do with that. And so uh, basically after three years in the Arabian desert, Paul returns home. He goes home. He's probably 23, 25 now. And he does what a lot of 23 to 25 year olds are doing these days. He goes home. He just goes and moves in with mom and dad. His life is a wreck, and he doesn't know what to do about it. And he stays there until Barnabas, whose name is son of encouragement, that's what that means, he encourages him to return to Jerusalem. So as we go to the map, you can see how this plays out. Um, he goes up, he's blinded here, he goes on up to Damascus, he regains his sight, and then for three years he's hanging out around here in the Arabian Desert. And, and he just cannot make sense of what's happened. His whole life is upside down, and he goes home to Tarsus. And he goes back to what he knows. M many of us have done that. When life doesn't you know, go the way we expect it to go, we go back home, we try to get our bearings, we try to figure it out. And, and God begins to talk to Barnabas all the way down here in Jerusalem. And to be fair, the disciples are, are terribly afraid of Saul. They know that he was at the stoning of Stephen. They don't know what to do about it. But Barnabas is called to go, leave Jerusalem, go all the way up to Tarsus, get Paul and say, hey, you've got a call on your life. You know it, we know it. God's talking to you. Let's, let's go. And he brings him back down. And the whole way, uh, Saul is saying, no, Barnabas, this isn't a good idea. You know, Peter doesn't want to see me. You know, I know he walked on water and all that. He's very close to Jesus. Matthew, James, and John, they don't have anything to do with me. You know, they know about my past. And the whole way, Barnabas gets him down here to Jerusalem, and God calls them out. So Barnabas and Paul, they travel 1,580 miles to Cyprus. Uh, and they go from Cyprus, then to Perga, and then from Perga up to Pisidian Antioch, and they preach in the Jewish synagogues. Now, again, these aren't Christian churches, friends. These, this is hostile territory. Uh, yes, Paul's a Jew, uh, but this is the Jewish synagogue, and they still believe that Jesus uh, is not the Messiah. They think he's a heretic. And so what God calls Barnabas and Paul to is to leave Jerusalem. It's going to be down here, and they're going to sail to Cyprus, obviously. There's no bridge. And so they're going to Cyprus, and then from Cyprus, they're going to go up to Perga. And from Perga, they're going to have about a 5,000-foot ascent through the mountains up to Pisidian Antioch. Friends, that travel, just that piece alone, is further than we, if we walk from here to New York or here to L.A., right? From here to L.A. is roughly 1,300 miles, uh, same way to New York City as the crow flies. And so this is a very long, six-month, year-long type of journey. And so then Barnabas and Paul, they, separate, they go separate ways, and Paul now is traveling with Silas and with Timothy. And, and so as they go to Philippi, uh, that's on up. And so as they do that, uh, Pisidian Antioch is here. And then they're going to go all the way up and sail it to Neapolis and then on up to Philippi. That's where they're going to be. And it's there at Philippi that you would think that things would really pick up. You notice that Jerusalem, where's Jerusalem on the map? It's all the way down here. So as God is calling Paul, is he getting closer or further away from home? 
further and further and further away. Tarsus, Jerusalem, Cyprus, Perga, Antioch, all the way up here to Philippi. He's getting further and further away. However, all of this, every bit of this is Roman Empire. That's how vast the Roman Empire is. And, and all the way down to Africa as well. And so Paul's Roman citizenship is serving him well, but it doesn't keep him from being beaten, stripped naked in the public square, flogged, and imprisoned in Philippi. He's doing exactly what God wants him to do, and yet it's going terribly. And so uh, getting whipped in those days or a flogging would look something like this, uh, where they would put uh, metal balls and fish hooks on the end of it, and they knew that if they beat you 39 times, you would probably live, but if they beat you more than 40 times, you would probably die. And so the Bible talks about 40 lashes minus one to where they would just keep you on the edge of death. This is what they do to Paul and Silas before they throw them into jail. And the jail is not like a jail we have today. It's really just a, a cutout of a, uh, of a rock outcropping, and they put bars in front of it. And so um, Paul and Silas are singing hymns to God after this. This is amazing to me. I don't know what, what you would do. I don't think amazing grace would be on my mind uh, at that point. Maybe, maybe so, but that's what they're doing. And, and God brings an earthquake, and as, as, the, as it shakes, these fall down. Um, and the jailer, being a Roman, thinks that he's going to be tortured to death in front of his colleagues and because he thinks everybody's going to escape, and lo and behold, they don't. They don't leave. They say, we're right here. And it's in that moment that the, the jailer then realizes that he's a part of something much bigger than himself much bigger even than that vast Roman Empire. And Paul says, I'm here. You don't, don't worry, we're here for you. He goes to their house, they have dinner, the jailer's baptized, all of his household is baptized, and they come to faith. And then at that moment, Paul goes, okay, back to jail. I mean, can you imagine that? Back to jail, that's what Paul says. Because he doesn't want this jailer to lose his faith. He is now a brother in Christ with him. The one who was his oppressor is now his brother. And what that demands of him is that he goes back to jail so that this brother can be spared his life. And then he goes on. Now, this is a pretty good journey. I would think, I'm done. I feel released. I'm, I'm doing pretty good. But that is not what happens. Uh, look what happens. Because we're just in the middle of what uh, scholars call the second missionary journey. So we're at point one here. And that is that he continues on then to Thessalonica. He doesn't go home. I mean, if it were me, I'd, I'd be headed home. But, but not Paul. And so Paul goes then from Philippi. Right? He's going to go all the way back here to Jerusalem if he was headed home. But no, he, he goes on over to Thessalonica and then another 36 miles over to Berea. And there, Silas and Timothy, they depart. And Paul travels on alone from Berea all the way down to what is now today and was then Athens, Greece. And he's alone. And notice that it really all shifts here. Uh, it's no longer Jews and synagogues. Uh, it's no longer Christian conversation. He is now in the marketplace. That's your blank there. He is in the marketplace. Uh, it'd be sort of like if uh, Andy and I went to another country and we went to the Mall of America, right? In, in the middle is the food court and on the ends, uh, there are all kinds of shops to different sorts of things. This is not a religious place. This is a place where the Epicureans and the Stoics, they would come and they would learn and they would debate. This would be a debate about the way the world is. Uh, and what you should do about it and the way you lead in that. So the intellectuals and the philosophers, uh, they gathered in the marketplace. This was commonplace for them. And they would argue these ideas. Greeks like to do that. The Romans would do that. And Paul engaged in that discussion. But he came at it from a very different place. He came and, and, and all surrounded him uh, there in Athens were all of these different temples, all these different shops, all these different things to different sorts of powers in the world, whether that be sexuality or war or business or fame. There were all these other gods, idols, if you will, 
Um, and so if you were to kind of go into a mall today uh, and you would see all these things gathered around you, they represent something. Some sort of felt need might be our words today. And that's how it was for Paul. And they all gathered there. And so uh, Paul begins to engage in this conversation right in the middle of the public square, right in the middle of the public market. And he says this, The God who made the world and everything in it, the God, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed what? Anything. What does God need? Nothing. He doesn't need anything. Now, I know some of you are like, whoa, wait a minute, this is weird, I'm in church, you're always telling me God needs something from me. No, that's not true. Now, an organization might need something from you or an institution, uh, but God doesn't. God doesn't need anything from you. He loves you. In the same way that parents don't need anything from a three-week-old infant, God doesn't need anything from you. We, we are tiny in his eyes. We are very young because God is very old, right? And he just loves us because he loves us. We're his children. Uh, Paul's going to write in just a little bit. See, God isn't served by human hands. He doesn't need us to run errands for, for him. He doesn't need anything from us. Since he himself gives to all mortals our very life and breath and all things. God doesn't need anything from us. So say it with me. God does not need anything. One more time. Read it with me. God does not need anything. Does this resonate with you? You need to understand this. God doesn't need anything from you. He just loves you. Because he does. Because you're his. You're made in his image. In the same way that you love uh, your child. Now, our hope is, of course, that we grow to where we love God back because he first loved us. But at at the face of it, at the very beginning, we need to understand that God loves you and doesn't need anything from you. And, And Paul goes on. He says, from one ancestor, he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, this God. Not like your little gods that are in these temples made of hands where you get to manipulate it. No, this God, our God, allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries, the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. No, because we find him in Jesus. For in him we live and move and have our own being, even as some of your own poets have said. He's connecting with the people right where they are. Notice that he's not shaming them. He's not telling them um, that they're bad or ugly or horrible or any of that. He's not in in sort of the political debate that we might see today. Um, He's basically just meeting them where they are. And he says then, like you already know this, we too are his offspring. Now we don't use the word offspring so much anymore. We say it like this, we are God's what? Children. We're God's children. Each and every one of us, every person that you will ever lock eyes with in your life is a child of God. And because that's true, they're of sacred worth. And because of that, we are to treat them with love what we find out from Jesus. And so Paul goes on. He says, since we are God's children, we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity, God, is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. No, the God that we worship is much bigger than that, bigger than every temple that uh, is gathered around. And, and as Paul engages in this in the public square, what we find is that few came to faith under Paul's leadership in Athens. Just a few. If you read through the book of Acts, there's just a couple of names listed. And, and so this is, this is an important teaching, friends, because sometimes we do exactly what God asks us to do. Uh, we're preaching our guts out, or we're teaching, or we're working with the youth group, or we're working with kids, or uh, we go on a mission trip, or we do this, and there's less than a handful of people that seems to make any difference for us. And we can feel really discouraged about that, but I want you to think about this. From the time of Christ to the year 1054, there was only one church, just one church. And the primary among them, one of the very biggest churches among them, was in Greece. Today we call it the Greek Orthodox Church. It's been around for more than 2,000 years. And literally millions of people have come to faith in Christ through this first thing. Through these few. So say it with me. 
Those few were the foundation for millions in the Greek church. St. George is right down the street from us. Still going today. These few, this handful, this thing that looked on the face of it as some sort of failure, didn't go very well. These few laid the foundation for millions around the world. It's so important that we understand this. And so this is good work that Paul is doing there in Athens. Although he might not have even thought that it went that well. But here's the thing. If I'm Paul, and I'm a Pharisee, and I'm not supposed to deal with anything that has any sort of sexual immorality about it, not death, not blood, not, I mean, anything. I'm supposed to be well far removed. How in the world is he engaging people that are completely different than he is? Because Paul knew something that we all need to remember, and that is that Christ saves sinners, and only sinners. When we were up in Kansas City a couple days ago, uh, on Thursday night, we heard Bishop Willeman speak, and this is what he says, Christ saves sinners, only sinners. That's all he saves. Jesus himself says, look, the healthy people, they don't need a doctor. It's the sick that need the physician. That's why I came. I came to save the sick and the lost, to save. That's what I've come to do. So Christ saves sinners, only sinners. Will you say that with me? Christ saves sinners, only sinners. And that's why we start each service here. Good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. Because we all need saving. And if you don't need saving, then you don't need a savior, right? I mean, if you're a lifeguard and there's a person drowning, you go in and you save the person drowning. Uh, if you're a lifeguard and the person swims by and you say, how are you doing? They're like, I'm just fine. Then you leave them alone. And so the thing is, Christ only saves sinners. And Paul would say, and I'm first among them. I was one way, and now Christ got a hold of me and he's lifted me up. And so now in his power, in his life, uh, I was a sinner, am a sinner, but now I'm being changed by him. Later to the church in Rome, Paul's going to write this. He says, why we were still weak, why we were still sinners, far from God. At the right moment, Christ died for what kind of people? Ungodly people. Not for people that have it all together. Not for people that have, you know, made it through a certain Bible study, this or that. But for what kind of people? Ungodly people. It's in our brokenness, in our mess that we need a Savior. And that's who God saves. And that's great news for us, friends. Great news for us. This is the good news. So God doesn't need anything from us. We are his children by God's choice, and he saves us. That's the good news of the gospel. The question is, do you know that you need saving? That's an important question, because that's who God saves, those who turn to him for help. And so he leaves Athens, and I don't know how he feels about that. I, again, if, if I'd spent a number of days, I traveled all that way, and I only had one or two people respond, I don't know. You know, what I'd feel like doing, I'd probably want to go home. But that's not what Paul does. Paul goes on to Corinth, which was the major city of the time. And he spends a year and a half there, longer than he spent anywhere thus far. Now, Corinth is a port city with shopping and taverns and brothels um, in the same way that a lot of port cities do today. Uh, prostitution was legal, uh, and this was the place to be. So in Corinth, right here, there's a little isthmus right here. And the distance between right here and right there is a little less than four miles. And so um, if you kind of zoom out, what you'll find is uh, that people who wanted to sell goods from this side of the world had two choices. You could go here and you could sail all the way around and back in, which was, took a very long time. Or you could actually dock your ship and roll it across the four miles on a dolly. Uh, they had slaves and workers there that would do that for you. And in four days, you could go from here to there. Uh, rather than the other journey. And it would look like this. You can still see it today uh, where they would roll those ships across those four miles. Now, the people that sailed the ships often were not the ones rolling the ships. That was a different group. So you had a four-day layover. You're just hanging out. You could do whatever you wanted to do, and whatever happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. Right? That's just the way it was. 
And so you could find everything in the whole world there at Corinth because that's where everybody came. And at the very top of that city, if you looked up, anybody know what this is? This is the Acropolis, uh, 2,000 feet from sea level up to here. And this is the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Although she's not the goddess of love, she's the goddess of lust and sexuality. And those are different. Paul's going to make that known. Now, you can imagine Paul, the Pharisee, who can't have anything to do with any of the immorality. He's standing there now in the marketplace at Corinth, and he looks up, and he is surrounded by these temples of war and power and sexuality and marketplace stuff. And, and he's trying again. He could not be farther from home, culturally, socioeconomically, um, you, you name it. He keeps going. Is he getting closer to home or further away? Further and further and further and further away. So he looks up at the Acropolis. This would have been surrounding him. And again, prostitution's legal. It said that there might have been 1,000, 2,000 prostitutes uh, up uh, in, in Aphrodite's temple. Um, and that just, everybody just kind of you know, didn't think anything of it. Um, and so Paul really had to wrestle with what it meant to be a Christian and to teach them what it meant to be a Christian uh, in Corinth. Uh, he's going to write four letters to them um, in just a little bit after he leaves. So as he's trying to figure out what to do, one night the Lord said to Paul in a vision, do not be what? Of course he's afraid. These aren't his people. These are completely other. He doesn't know what to do with them. So God says, but speak and do not be silent, for I am with you. By the way, that's what God always says, right? I mean, anywhere in the Bible, even in your own prayer time, this is what God says. You say, I'm afraid. God says, don't be afraid. I'm with you. I'm with you. And no one will lay a hand on you to harm you, for there are many in the city who are what? My people. Now, again, they don't look like my people. They don't look like God's people, but God says they are my people. Now, I want you to think about your own life, right? There are people all over that you might not think are God's people, right? If you ever doubt that the world needs a Savior, just go to the State Fair of Oklahoma, right? And those are not my people. We, we went last Friday night, and I was like, wow. These are not, these are not my people, and, and, and there was a moment where I was like, I might be a little afraid, you know? And then you have to kind of recalibrate. Like, no, okay, these are, these are God's people. Because who are God's people? All people. And God calls us to other. God calls us to all people, not just our people. But we are tribal, aren't we? I mean, we, just, we like to be with the people we like to be with. And that's always been the way it is from the time of Christ to today. There's something inside of us that we really just want to be with folks kind of like us. It makes us feel comfortable. But that's not what church is about. That's not what Christ came to do. He came for all people. For all people. So don't be afraid, he says. For I'm with you. No one's going to lay a hand on you or harm you. For there are many in this city who are my people. And he stayed there a year and a half. A year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So after he leaves, then he writes, uh, in the four years after Paul's visit, he writes four letters. We know them as 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians is probably the second letter, but we won't get all confused by all that. Uh, they think they lost the first letter, but there, there are these letters back and forth. And, and, and the letters, basically, friends, uh, are about correcting divisions or party rhetoric. Paul writes, do not let a party spirit be within you. He writes this to the churches. And he's, he's concerned uh, about what he's hearing. Now, I know this is shocking to you, um, but sometimes people aren't on the same page at church. Sometimes they think about things differently. Sometimes they, we all believe in Jesus and we, and we know that he's good, but we're not sure that we're going to get there in the same way. You see, even in the early church, there were, there were divisions among how they were going to live out this faith. 
And so Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians. He says, now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, people that he loves. This is a church that he started. He says, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in what? Agreement, and that there be, say it with me, no divisions among you, but that you be what? United in the, say it with me, same mind and the same purpose. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people, that snitch, right? Paul thought everything was fine, and then Chloe comes like, oh, no, Paul, you need to know this, right? You all have that friend. Like, oh, you've been away a couple months? Oh, you need to know this, right? Chloe writes back to Paul that there are what? Quarrels among you. They were not getting along, my brothers and sisters. And so Paul, in case people missed it, he says, what I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Now, let's hold there for a minute. Uh, because the thing is, uh, when I was in junior high, I think uh, one of my Sunday school teachers, we were reading through this, uh, and we got to the, you know, don't have a party spirit. And, and they were like, yeah, so don't, don't go party. That's not what that means. Now, for you young people, that's also not a loophole. Um, but it, that's just not what that means. What this means is don't be a Democrat. Or don't be a Republican. Or don't be a Libertarian. Because what we're about is different. It's bigger. It's more important. And it supersedes all that petty quarreling stuff that you see on TV. What we're about is bigger than all of that. Now, Paul struggled with it. The church is less than 100 years old at this point, And people are already saying, oh, no, no, no. I'm with Paul. He's the founding pastor, so I'm with Paul. And others go, no, 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 no. Apollos is doing all this great stuff empowered by the Holy Spirit. I'm with Apollos who followed Paul. You know what Paul says about that? He says it doesn't matter. He says, I plant the seed, Apollos waters, God gives the growth. Right? It's God who grows stuff. It's not about Paul or Apollos. Not at all. God gives the growth. And, and then he says, or Peter. Cephas is Peter. Right? And they're like, no, no, no. I belong to Peter because Peter walked on water. He's closest to Jesus. He's Jesus. He's the rock. So I belong to Peter. And others say, no, no, no. You all are all wrong. I belong to Christ. I'm not a part of any of this mortal stuff. I'm a part of Jesus himself. And Paul goes, no, friends, this will ruin a church. This will ruin a country when we're all about our own political ideology. And I've shared this with you before. Uh, you know, presidential election years are a beating as a pastor. I mean, it's just brutal to be up here. Because I know that for some, uh, their political ideology trumps, that didn't mean it that way, but, um, you know, <laughs> goes above their faith. And Paul says it can't be that way. You won't survive like that. Christ has to be above, above it all, above your country, above every nation, above every ideology. And if it's not, then it falls apart. You see, Paul writes to the church to do what? To love, to love. So I want to ask you, I want to have a little experiment here. I want you to think about love. I like love. Love's good, right? So I want you to think, who do you love? Just take a moment in your mind. Think of someone you love, somebody you love. Do you have that? Now, I'm, I'm not a mind reader, but this, this is just too easy. Because pretty much every time, if I'm talking to a grandparent, I know that it's the grandkid that came to mind. Because you love that little granddaughter, and then you send her back home. It's perfect. You know, it's just perfect. And, and for a lot of parents, they, they just love that child. That, that's just, you know, just good. They're just, you, they don't, you don't have any problems with them. They just, they're just the good kid, and you just love them. You don't admit that to the other kids, but you just do. You just love them. You know, or, or maybe uh, it's your spouse, or maybe it's your best friend, or maybe it's somebody who's made a difference in your life. You just, you just, you just love them, you, right? I mean, you have that person in your mind? Now, I'm, I'm going to see, that this, this was 
fail safe at 915. We'll see if it's true here. Okay, so if you're a registered Democrat, don't raise your hand, just think about it. If you're a registered Democrat, when I said, who do you love, how many of you all thought Trump? None. We didn't have any 915 either. And, and, it, it, and then if, if you're a registered Republican, and I say, who do you love, how many of you all thought Hillary? See, that's what Paul's talking about, right? That's what Paul's talking about. He's saying we are to love, right? It's not about our sexuality. It's about an intentional doing good for the other, making the world a different place by loving those who are completely different than you are. Now, at this point, you should be nervous because this is hard stuff. But nothing less will change the world. Make no mistake about it, friends. Nothing less than this changes the world. It is our ability to love those who hate us, who persecute us, who think differently than us, that, that represent different sorts of things than we do. That's who God's calling us to love. That's what Paul's talking about. Not a party spirit, but to actually step into and show love and honor to other people that are completely different than we are. Because that's what changes the world. And really that alone. Nothing less than that. And so he writes later to the church in Corinth. He says, you know, in case you've forgotten what love really is, in case you still think it's something like that, you know, Aphrodite temple up on the top, let me tell you what love is. And he writes this. Maybe you've had this at your wedding or you've been to a wedding or something like this. And, and if you know the scripture, it'll say, love is patient, love is kind, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude, right? Right? Love is not irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoings, rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, right? You know this, perhaps. Okay, let's, let's test it out. Let's see how you're doing. So I want you to put your name in the blank. Now, I want you to read it out loud with me. That's why it's in gold. You put your name in the blank. And let's see how you're doing. And by the way, at 9.15, um, I was modeling this, and they just all said, Mark is patient, Mark is kind. I'm like, no, uh, no, put your name in the blank. Y'all ready? Here we go. One, two, three. Mark is patient, is kind, is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. Say your name. Does not insist on its own way. Is not irritable or resentful. Mark does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Because here's the thing, friends. Paul couldn't have done any of that stuff on his own. The only reason Paul was able to do all of this is because he's empowered by God. Because God lives in him. That the Holy Spirit is moving him out. Because love never fails. Will you say that with me? Love never fails. And it's love that lives in you. It's love with hands and feet that go and bless the other. Now, there's nothing wrong with loving your grandkids. There's nothing wrong with loving your family. But quite frankly, Jesus says, friends, that's no big deal. Even non-believers do that. If you love others that are just like you, so what? That takes, that takes no supernatural ability whatsoever. That's just good business sense. But this, loving people that you don't want to be around, that's hard. That requires a spirit, a power greater. That requires God super on our natural. That's what it requires. So our action step for this week is this, to intentionally engage your other this week with love. So I want you to think about your other. Who's your other? Who is it that God's calling you to show love to, to go and intentionally bless? And you might wonder, well, you know, why, why are we talking about this? Well, one, because Facebook and our political system are a mess, and it will be for a number more weeks. And, and we can do something about that, at least on our part. In our little tiny corner of the world, we can just say no to that. And we can start showing love, because it makes a difference. We can do that. 
But more importantly, our very salvation and lives and souls are at risk. That's the truth of it. And, you know, and I know that this isn't easy preaching time, um, but the fact of the matter is, in 1 John, uh, we have really clear instruction about this. Now, this isn't from Paul. This is from the Gospel of 1 John. But I want you to see what it is. And I, and I, want, you to, I want you to read it with me. I hope you'll read it each day this week because it's an important and powerful reminder. And let's see what the Gospel of John says, about 1 John says about love. You read it with me. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. Those who say, I love God, and hate their brothers or sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from God is this. Those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. Yikes. This is the word of the Lord. This is the truth of the gospel. That we cannot say that we love God. We cannot say that we follow God. We cannot say that we follow Jesus if we refuse to love our brothers and sisters who we have right in front of us that disagree with us about all sorts of things. We are to show love to those folks. And if we can't, we don't get to pretend that we're loving God because we're not. It's a very difficult teaching. And most of us don't want to do it. And, and, and I just want you to know that, you know, I can see you from here. I can see you. And God can see us. And, he, and he's, he's loving us. And he's like, we can do this. And I know that it's a mess. I know it's a mess. But God calls us to love right in the middle of that mess because God first loved the middle of our mess and Jesus, our Savior. And we give him thanks and praise for that. Amen.